Now, there's about seven questions, but um, three of them are practically all on the same theme. But to begin with, uh, these are of a, a simpler nature. <coughs> what is it that gets reincarnated? If the body and ego self are eventually destroyed, is all that is left just action, therefore karma, which is reincarnated? This is fair. What is it that actually gets reincarnated? Uh, three things. Uh, Buddha said, Vinyanam Kettam, Kammam Bijan, and Avijja Kasako. Now, Tanna Sineo, Avijja Kasako, so four things actually. Uh, consciousness is the field, karma is the seed, desire or greed is the water, and ignorance is the farmer. <laughs> These are the four things. Farmer is called kasaka in Pali. The, that uh, sow the seed. The seeds are common. Consciousness is the field and uh, greed, desire is the water. So, we have this. Body disintegrated, feeling disappears, life uh, force uh, severed. So what is left is karma, consciousness, ignorance, and desire. I think these four are plenty, very powerful, <laughs> that comes in one package. We don't need the ego. You know, ego or self is a concept that uh, People nourish for a long, long period of time in, from time immemorial in human history. Up to this date, they have never found it. But the concept is very strongly held. And also the notion of one attribute of a self or ego or soul is that which is uh, unchanging, immutable, permanent, eternal something, which we never find in our life. So if something on the other hand is immutable, unchanging, permanent, eternal, it can be transformed into another life, <laughs> because it is permanently fixed. Something permanently fixed can never 100% transform into another life, and therefore that is we put aside, because it is irrelevant, it's just a concept. What uh, really we have is the consciousness and uh, the karma that we commit. You said in your question, uh, action, surely it is an action, but action so long as we have a desire and ignorance, the action does not disappear. 
when we, after we have committed it. Because of the desire, consciousness and ignorance, this action, karma, takes root. That is why it is called seed. And the ignorance, not knowing the future, not knowing the liberation from this whole repetition, uh, we commit various uh, things, sometimes wholesome, sometimes unwholesome, and they all have, uh, they all are rooted in our subconscious mind, consciousness. And therefore the desire is the driving force. Even in this life, because we have a desire, we move on. And Buddha said, Chandamulaka Sambhidhamma, all the activities, mental, physical activities, are initiated by Chanda, desire, need, willing, will. So <clears throat> these are enough forces to regenerate or reproduce another life. That is how rebirth takes place. Reincarnated is not appropriate term because uh, uh, there are places where there is no carne, no flesh. Re in incarne is uh, getting into flesh. Carne is flesh. Discarne is separating from the flesh. Reincarne is getting into the flesh again. And there are situations, there are, there are lives where there is no carne, no flesh, like uh, uh, Brahma realms, immaterial existence, there is no flesh. And therefore the word uh, incarnation is not appropriate English terms to use for this whole uh, repetition of birth and death. So the proper term is re-becoming, re-becoming. When we say becoming, it can become human, animal, divine, visible, invisible, with form, with uh, form, without form, with flesh, without flesh, anything. So I think better term is re-becoming, as Buddha said in his Paticca South Park. Next question. No matter how well rested I am, mental fatigue sits in about 20 minutes after I begin meditation. Mental fatigue? Mental fatigue. Mm. I struggle not to fall asleep, but much of the meditation period flow can I... Well, during uh, much of the meditation period. How can I combat this? <coughs> mental fatigue is uh, due to various things, either because of uh, uh, lack of physical energy, or because you did not have enough sleep, or because uh, you have a lot of food in the stomach, or because you are you need a lot of sleep. Some people, you know, by nature, they sleep longer than other people. Now, when we come to meditation, especially with personal meditation, we get uh, we should get more energy. When we meditate, we get more energy. That is why meditators don't need too much sleep. They, they can have 
the same benefit from meditation as they get from sleep. Because during meditation, mind becomes calm, relaxed, peaceful, and body becomes very, very energetic to go on meditating longer time. And therefore, when you feel sleepy, you got to make your checklist. You check what is uh, the cause, whether you didn't have, didn't have enough sleep, or whether you had uh, food in the stomach, whether you had uh, been tired anyway, and your sleep may not be good sound sleep. You said you had a good sleep, but sleep might have not been good sleep. Anyway, when you come to meditation, if you feel sleepy, I recommend <coughs> few things. You get up, stand up, and do standing meditation. Number one, and then sit down and try to meditate. If you feel sleepy again, get up and walk. Do walking meditation, and come back and sit down. If that doesn't work, you may pinch your earlobes with thumb and index finger both ear lobes hard enough to feel the pinch, so that wakes you up. Or if that doesn't work, you take a deep breath, hold it, hold it as long as you can, and slowly breathe out. And again breathe in, hold it, and slowly breathe out. If you do it several times, your sleepiness will fade away. If that doesn't work, you can visualize a very bright light. Buddha called it alokasanya, perception of bright light. That also is very effective method of overcoming sleepiness. So, with all this, I believe you might be able to have good meditation. If none of them works, go and have a nap. <laughs> Uh, in a preview before the nap, remember that one about uh, when you inhale? Hold your breath. Yeah. Uh -huh. That works? That's about that. Works for you. Very good. See? At least it works for somebody. <laughs> you can hold your breath. And you can hold your breath so long you actually start to perspire. Yeah. Then you're awake. Yeah. What exactly does sensual misconduct involve? I've only heard it referred to as sexual misconduct for the precepts. Yes, sensual misconduct means abusing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Now, sexual misconduct comes under body misconduct. But there are five other misconducts. <laughs> eyes. How can we uh, abuse our eyes? I know some people, I have a, we had a friend who had two TVs. He sits and watch TV and watch and watch and watch when that TV gets very hot and it begins to, you know, the light, the color and so forth begin to change and pictures are going haywire so he turn on, turn on the other TV because he doesn't want to miss anything, keep watching. So what happens? Eventually you destroy your eyes. 
by abusing. We abuse our eyes in many ways. People go for, to see this and see that and so forth all their life for nothing. Just they think this is entertainment. How much enter- we, we can entertain ourselves by seeing. So, that is how we abuse our eyes. Years, one day I was on a, in a car, in somebody's car, while driving, I, I, I listened to talk show on radio. The man said, I never turn off my radio. I want to listen to news 24 hours. I don't want to miss any news, any part of the world. See, this is an obsession. How much news can you hear? So many thousands of radio stations are there in the world. And if you were to turn on your radio all the time to listen to all this news, how much you can remember, how much you can listen. Just, that is just abusing your ears. Blasting radio and TV very loudly, you destroy your hearing. And so forth, this is how we abuse. And then, nose. You know, some, uh, I think sometimes children or teenagers, uh, they want to get high, they go and go and, go and sniff uh, pain thinners and these magic markers, right, to get, t- get high. That is how they abuse their nose. And tongue, there are two ways of abusing tongue. One is talking, one is eating. <laughs> when we abuse our uh, tongue by eating, see the amount of problems we will have, all kinds of junk we eat. Junks are the tasty, more, more tasty than regular food. So we keep in junks and then we poison our body and we need a lot of uh, treatment after And uh, then that is what we put in and what is come what comes out is abusive words <laughs> talk lying slanderous talk harsh language gossip this is how we abuse our tongue and uh, drink drugs all kind of things and then abuse our mind how we abuse our mind Always think negative things. Negative. Criticizing, criticizing. Nothing in the world can we appreciate. Mentally we keep this sort of an obsession. Obsessive criticism. Uh, abusing. So this is how we abuse our senses. This is what is called sensual misconduct. How can you explain the relationship between mindfulness and concentration? And this is a preview to another question submitted. What are the different purposes and benefits of doing focused concentration practice versus a mere open awareness mindfulness practice? Oh, you know, this, it seems to be two questions. But they center around concentration versus mindfulness. mindfulness. 
You know, these two questions I have answered in the book called Beyond Mindfulness and in Plain English. Beyond Mindfulness in Plain English. Uh, I think some of you might have read it. Uh, I have answered this question. The relationship between mindfulness and concentration. I was trying to talk about it a little bit this afternoon, but it's, such, it's a big subject. In a short talk I cannot give a full answer. Concentration, if I were to use a, a simile, a concentration is like a laser beam. Mindfulness is like a clear eyesight. When you want to use the laser beam, you have to have a very clear eyesight. Laser beam can focus on a very tiny, tiny little thing. But if the eyesight is not good, you will goof, destroy. The purpose will not be fulfilled. Similarly, when we have good concentration, that concentration focuses on the minutest, tiniest subatomic particles changing. Changing, you know, impermanence is something that happens in time. Time is something that does not exist. <laughs> but what exists is the action. Action is so quick, so minute, which can be measured in time. You see, but when we gain deep concentration, we experience such a tiny little minute change that occurs in such a tiniest moment in time. But to recognize that, we have to have mindfulness. See, concentration focuses on it and mindfulness recognizes it. Mindfulness knows it, becomes aware of it. This is what is happening. So this concentration and mindfulness join together. This is what is called in Pali Yuganadha. Yuganadha. Yuga means two. Nadha means joining together. When concentration and mindfulness join together, then the awareness, understanding of impermanence in the tiniest, minutest way is possible. The tiniest thing we can understand when these two, the change of any tiniest, minutest thing, we can understand when mindfulness and concentration join together. So, therefore these two have equal power, equal strength, equal sharpness, equal clarity, equal uh, purpose. And the difference between these two, at the part of the question, the difference between these two is, one is developed by focusing mind only on one object, like uh, concentration, when we want to gain concentration, we don't take many things into account, details of anything into account, but focus mind only on one thing. When we practice mindfulness, 
everything and anything we experience, we become aware of their changes, appearing, disappearing, you know, three phases, what you call three moments, rising moment, peak moment and disappearing moment. Uh, rising moment, rising moment, we all, although we call rising moment, it is not static moment. Moment is something changing all the time. Peak moment also is not staying and staying at the peak. Even the peak moment is changing all the time. And passing away moment, naturally as we hear the word passing, it is, you know, falling. So, these three moments, we become aware of these three moments when we practice mindfulness meditation. These are the, the phases of impermanent changing. Changing goes through. For instance, we say in there's a discourse called Arya Pariyasana Sutta in Majjhimnikaya, where Buddha said uh, everything is uh, everything goes through birth, decay, death, birth, decay, death, and sorrow lamentation and so forth afterward happens. But this everything goes through this, and he gave example thought. Thought, for instance, thought has birth, thought has growth, thought has decay. <laughs> that means even the thought arises and it gets old and passes away. Our thought gets old. We don't understand that, we don't feel it, but we experience the thought getting getting old. It wears out, it then it disappears. So, everything goes through these three phases before they totally vanish. Once vanished, you can never find a trace of it. Gone forever. Never to return again. So, mindfulness, there are in Anapana Satisutta, where there are, the, which has been divided into sixteen pairs and then divide into four groups called tetrads. Last tetrad is Anichanapasi, Viraganapasi, Nirodhanapasi, Paradisagganapasi. Anicca means becoming aware of of the of these three phases, rising moment, peak moment and disappearing moment of everything. Everything means everything that we experience. Then, viraga means uh, not not non gluing, not clinging, not holding. When something is going, something is changing in that high speed. How can we hold on to it? It is just like uh, trying to uh, balance a mustard seed in the moving needle on the tip of moving needle, you cannot balance the mustard seed on it. Similarly, when things are changing so quickly, the mind cannot hold on to them. That is, then mind, let it go. That's called non-clinging, non-gluing. We can experience that. And then it ceases, nirodha. When it disappears, 
cannot glue, mind cannot glue it, it, it falls, passes away and disappears. And then thought in itself, the mind, let it go because it cannot find the, find any trace of getting it back. So this, these things are our experiences. Although we read in books, in words, but we really experience them only through mindfulness. Paying total undivided attention can be noticed that. So the difference between concentration and mindfulness, mindfulness sees all these changes in this way. Concentration is focusing on one object. That is in the this one particular object, while concentration is focusing, mindfulness can see what is happening to that object, which where concentration is focused. Okay, the next three questions are all centered on the same theme, um, very much of what you've already described, Bhante, with uh, seeing. So, uh, two of these are similar analogies, and then then I'll read the last one. An analogy, one thing that prevents our seeing in sync with anupasana, what is actually occurring in experience is that we stop and take a photograph of it, and then we get involved with the photo. In meditation, we are drying up our tendency to take photos. Your thoughts. Okay. Uh, I, I, I was wondering, because the next one's practically like this. It just uses a different analogy. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose I should, uh, I would, I'd be remiss not to read it. In learning to draw, students must learn to put out of action their concepts of things in order to see them as they are actually appear visually prior to concepts. This seems analogous to our task in meditation to see, not visually, to see horizons and experience prior to concepts and words. What are your thoughts? So, um, yeah, you want me to hold off and then I can read this after Please tell me one thing, the uh, first one. Yeah, the first one is uh, about the photography that uh, we get involved with the photo. Well, anyway, one thing that prevents our scene in sync with Anupasana, what is actually occurring, occurring in experience, is that we stop and take a photo of it, <coughs> and then we get involved with the photo. In meditation, we are drawing up our tendency to take photos. Mm. Now, in meditation, is in this analogy, when you take a photo, you think you can, later on you can see what you have taken in the picture. So you take it easy and you don't worry about it, so when you have time you can look at it. In meditation it's not like that. You cannot uh, uh, register thing in the mind and then later on process what you have registered. That is not what we do in meditation. And therefore this uh, 
photo analogy we can use in meditation. Mindfulness is taking the photo, analyzes it, and sees it, becomes fully aware of it, and what happens to it, and then discard it. Mindfulness gets full, complete process of uh, the situation. Now, in the mindfulness, we become aware of the action. Action. Action we cannot photograph. In uh, Only in uh, movies, movie photo, movies you can see the uh, action, uh, motion, but we don't learn anything from that. But when we are mindful, we become, we have a feeling. When, we, when something is happening, we become aware of the feeling. We become aware of the perception. We become aware of the consciousness. Uh, we become aware of uh, how it is changing. All happens in a split second. So, uh, when we are mindful, uh, this all happens in a split second. Next moment happens something like that in the split second. Next moment and something like that. So every moment something like that happened and mindfulness will take the complete picture of everything and then let it go. And there's nothing left behind. So uh, photographic uh, analogy or simile is good for the material side of it. But in a psychologically, practically, in a spiritual mindfulness uh, training, we may have the, the knowledge of what we, what we had, but uh, you can reproduce it, appears, and mindfulness get the whole complete understanding, and next moment happens, and mindfulness get full complete awareness and understanding, and then next moment and so forth. And then eventually, this called knowledge and uh, awareness, jnana and dasana. Jnana means wisdom, dasana means vision. We, get, we become, we gain knowledge and vision. Vision is something that cannot uh, reproduce. And we can understand it and deepen our awareness. Now, it seems like this other analogy is very much along that same line, Pati. In learning to draw, students must learn to put out of action their concepts of things in order to see them as they are actually appear visually prior to concepts. This seems analogous to our task of meditation to see, not visually, arisings in experience prior to concepts of words. Yeah. Exactly. Experience arises prior to concept. After experience we conceptualize what we have experienced. And then we may even use words, we verbalize. Once we conceptualize, then we can verbalize and then we can express and talk about it, but not the same as experience. Experience only very small percentage of experience can be put into words, not the total experience. We all know that. There are many things that we experience, only we can uh, 
talk about it is just like dropping in the dark. We cannot uh, give the total picture of experience. So that's the difference. So the next one, uh, I'm going to add some prefaces. Okay, from your talk, I understood the concept of anapasana. Is it a non-conceptual, precise scene of that which is right now arising and passing away in all its richness in our experience? Is this correct? Uh, I don't know whether I can read it. Well, you can read it, but I had to impose the um, uh, preface of uh, making a question. From your talk, I understand, understood that uh, anupasana equal a non-conceptual, precise seeing of oh. that which is right now arising and passing away in all its richness in our experience. Is this correct? Yes. Non-conceptual, precise seeing of what of that which is right now arising and passing away. That is very true. Passing away. In all its right richness in our experience, that is very true. Exactly as it is happening, we become fully aware of it in its completeness. It is like an exact duplicate of something. Our awareness of it is complete awareness, and that is anupasana. So, uh, that is why uh, we, you hear many a time, uh, meditation teachers, Vipassana meditation teachers say, be in the present, be in the present. When something is happening now in the present, exactly that very moment, in that moment, the mind should register it exactly as it is happening. If you are a split second behind, you miss something. If you split second ahead, you are going to miss something. But you got to be on the spot at the moment, at this very moment, as exactly as it is happening. So, I was trying to explain uh, uh, two things happening, for example, breathing, breathing is going on, in and out, in and out. At the same time, awareness also goes along with the breath, awareness. So, awareness will not, not be anything short of what is happening to the breath. So, awareness knows exactly what is happening to the breath. That is called anupasana. So, you, what you said here is very true. Next is, my description about is also what I understand and part of mindfulness to be is this correct, right? Is correct. That's all? Yeah, that's all the questions. Okay. Now we have a few more minutes if you want to, somebody wants to answer one question, answer question from the floor, yes? Um, can you explain?
awareness Understanding. Understanding. And the other one is awareness experience. Awareness experience. You know, when awareness experience is not distorted, not uh, translated, then understanding will be very clear as we have become aware. So, we might say understanding, awareness are equal. Why? When we are, uh, for instance, when we see light, when we see light exactly as it is, that is what we understand. Awareness of seeing light is just like awareness, and understanding that it is so is perfectly equal to what we have become, become aware. So these are Almost synonymous. But conceptualizing is different from those. Hmm? Conceptualizing is different than understanding. Are they are conceptualizing and understanding different things? Different. Different. Actually, that is why we say don't is based on uh, the discourses like Magapindika Sutta and so forth. Concept can be deceptive. Concept is compared to mirage. <laughs> you know, mirage is that it's uh, deer in hot summer days uh, sees mirage, so deer thinks that it is water. So deer runs towards it to drink. As he runs towards it, he can see water further away. So he goes there and keeps running, running, running with, you know, very desperate thirst. And then he stops and look back. He has passed water behind him. So when he look back, he can see water behind. So he walks back runs back, chasing after this mirage. And then he stops and look back, he has passed water. So you runs that side. So concepts are like that. Concept pulls us here, pulls us there, to the past, future, and so forth. And we get bewildered, confused. Understanding is not like that. And therefore these are two. That is why Buddha says concepts are thorns, concepts are wounds, concepts are boils, concepts are impediments, and so forth, and concepts are mirage, and so forth. And uh, Buddha says, Namam sabbang anubhavi, nama biyo navijyati, nama seka dhammasa, sabbeva vasamannugu. He said, uh, the concept dominates everything. There is nothing bigger, greater, than concept. This very, the only one thing that the whole universe is subdued is by concept. Therefore, it's in a very useful tool, but uh, when it comes to realization, understanding the truth, it is an impediment, a stumbling block to understand.
So in Vipassana meditation particularly, we try to get to the core of the matter without having any of these, any of these embellishment, decorations, concepts, and so forth. We just want to go right into the heart of the matter in Vipassana meditation.